Two-thirds of our Bible is the Old Testament. And we must know it well. And I am also convinced that one of the reasons why many Christians don't know how to read the Old Testament is because pastors don't preach in the Old Testament. So we're going to spend the next three months in the Old Testament seeing Christ at every turn. So our sermon text for today is out of the book of Numbers. Chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Then they, set out to, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a stand. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the, stand, on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit a man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Imagine this picture. You're walking across the desert. You've heard from your leader that there is a promised land at the end of the journey, but you haven't seen it. Most people around you haven't seen it either. And the ones who have came back reporting that this land is filled with giants. The sun is just beating down on you. It has been for years. You look around and all you see is an exhausted people. So what do you do? You do what everyone else has been doing the entire journey. You grumble. God hears your grumbling. But instead of respite and rest, He sends fiery snakes to aggravate your suffering. And if the situation wasn't strange enough, God then tells you that your only hope to live is to lift your eyes and behold a bronze serpent. God tells you that the very thing that is killing you, the object of judgment, that is the very thing that will heal you. This story reminds us that God does not tolerate sin. God is completely opposed to dissatisfaction, grumbling, and unbelief. But this story also reminds us that salvation comes from the Lord. Often, in unexpected ways, salvation comes to us in His terms, in His way, and not 
in ours. For the next three weeks, we're going to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. And after that, we'll dive into our summer series through the book of Judges. I am convinced that much of the spiritual shallowness of modern evangelicalism stems from the fact that many so-called Christians don't love the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And many are not able to see Jesus in His Word and apply the Gospel to their own lives. Pastor Paul Washer once said, America is not Gospel-hardened. America is Gospel-ignorant. And I think there's great validity to what he said. We saw in the Gospel of Mark that spiritual blindness is when we can't see Jesus. That's the essence of spiritual blindness. Throughout much of His ministry, Jesus' disciples were spiritually blind. But as Jesus appeared to His disciples after His resurrection, He says this in the Gospel of Luke. These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then, here's how, here's how spiritual blindness is overcome. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So for the next three weeks, we'll look at the law of Moses. Today we're looking at the book of Numbers. We'll look at the Psalms. Next week we'll look at Psalm 46. And the prophets. In two weeks we'll go to the book of the prophet Hosea. So, as we do this, let us ask Jesus to open up our minds so that we can see everything written about Him in all of Scriptures. Today in our text, we're going to see a tired and weary people standing contrary to their God. They've been wandering in the desert for, for nearly 40 years. These have been hard and arduous years. Too much sand. Too much sun. Too much suffering. And too little satisfaction. They oppose God by grumbling, they despise the, the providence of God, they tell God, your provision is not enough, they tell God, your provision is not good. But the truth is this, the situation is more dire than that. They're actually saying to God, you are not good. You, God, are not enough. The reality is that we all grumble against God. It is in our nature. We all struggle with discontentment before a generous God. Grumbling reveals more than just words that are spoken against God. Grumbling reveals the heart. And apart from the work of Christ, our constant cry to God is, you 
are not enough. We all have a sin problem, don't we? And we all need to know how to respond rightly to sin. The Apostle Paul, writing about these very events that we're looking at today, said in 1 Corinthians, these things happen for your instruction. These things happen to Israel so that we, today, would know how to overcome sin. So, so here's my guiding thought for today. Our only hope to overcome sin is to look at Christ and live. Our only hope to overcome sin is to look at Christ and live. Four words are going to guide us through our text today. They are grumbling, judgment, repentance, and atonement. So let's, let's consider grumbling first. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Then they, that's the people of Israel, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. This is desert, this is harsh terrain, a place infested with death and pestilence. The sun will kill you, animals will kill you, thirst will kill you. Perhaps worse of all about this picture is not that they are in the desert, but that they are headed the wrong way. They're moving away from the promised land towards the land of Edom. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and the thought is that we'll be in Canaan soon. We'll, we'll be there soon. But God's plans were different. Israel thought that the desert was a short path to paradise, but it turns out that God wanted the desert to purify His people. Sometimes we think that holiness is the end goal, and we forget that there is a sense in which holiness is a process as well. It is necessary for us to go through hardship in order to grow. There's a song by a DJ that passed away a few years ago, DJ Avicii, that says, So wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. DJ Avicii had a lot of common grace and a lot of understanding, but he's dead wrong here. That is not how sanctification works. We don't sleep through our Christian life and then expect to be sanctified. No, we're very much awake as the Lord works in us. You know, enduring hardship is manageable when you at least know that you are headed the right way and that the end is near. But this wasn't the case here. One time when Boaz was first born, I, I remember running into this family at an ice cream shop, and the mom told us, my son didn't start sleeping through the night until he was 18 months. Uh, never say this to a, to a parent of a newborn, okay? At that moment, I lost all hope. 
I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I cried out, How long, O Lord? By God's grace, our experience with Elise has been much smoother. We're not sure if that's because she is the angel baby that we call her, or because second babies mature faster because there are some things that you simply don't care about the second time around. But Israel was saying to themselves, God promised us a land filled with milk and honey. And all we get is miserable manna and bitter water. Again in verse 4 it says that they grew impatient of the journey. They grew impatient towards the Lord. Patient is, patience is the fruit of the Spirit. God is patient. Look, patient. Look at how Peter puts it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient towards all. How there Israel respond to God with impatience? By the way, let me, let me add just a parenthesis here. I often hear people say, I am angry with the Lord. Friend, don't do that. Don't be angry with the Lord. That is not a good thing to embrace. Now, I understand that sometimes we can struggle with the Lord, but, but be like Jacob. Wrestle with Him. Wrestle with Him. But do not put yourself in opposition to the God who is able to do whatever He wants at any moment. God is patient towards you. Your response should be one of patience as well. Impatience reveals the inward reality of sin. Sin lives first in the heart, in our emotions, desires, in our inclinations. James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The word lust here uh, denotes desires. Verse 15, Then when lust is conceived, when that which is internal is birthed, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do you see that? Do you see how sin brings out what is inside? Sin is first born inside. Sin lives first in the heart. So the grumbling that was spoke, spoken of in those days, that grumbling was first alive in the heart of the people of Israel. Murder begins with anger. Adultery begins with lust. Stealing begins with coveting. But sin that is born in the heart does not stay in the heart. In verse 5, we see the outward expression of this internal sin. The people spoke against God and Moses. The image of ants raising their fists against an elephant for stumping on their heel. It amounts to nothing. The sin left the heart and flowed through the mouth. Israel was suffering from blindness towards God's grace. Look at verse 5 again. They say to God, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die 
in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. It is simply not true that there is no food and no water. They don't see the providence of God because God is not providing for them according to their desires. God has provided for them for 40 years bread and water, often quail and other meats. Friends, when our hearts are against God, we become blind to the goodness we experience. Have you become blinded to the goodness and providence of the Lord in your own life? Do you notice your hardship and think, Lord, why do you hate me? Why do you deal with me in such a way and forget the provision that the Lord has made for you all your life? Do you forget the gift of Jesus, the gift of life, have you been with the Lord so long and yet walk with him in your walk with him is filled with grumbling at his providence? Friends, our text for today can help us understand how to change the heart that is constantly dissatisfied. How do we change the mouth that grumbles? Well, here's how we do it. We cultivate gratefulness towards God in seasons of bliss and in seasons of hardship. Now notice that word, we cultivate like a farmer. It's hard work. We sow the seed. We water. We work the land. And we pray that God will cause it to grow. When circumstances are not going our way, praise the Lord. And when they're, when, when they're going our way, praise the Lord. We need to trust the Lord and our lips must ever bless Him. We must know the song of Job that says, The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Perhaps you're thinking, Pastor, you, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my children. You don't know my friends. You don't know how hard my life is. You don't know, you don't know my health condition. You don't understand my grumbling is justified. And friend, I, I don't. But this word is not coming to you from me. The word of satisfaction, the call to satisfaction is coming to you from the Lord. This is a lesson that I too must learn, that we all must learn. Friends, the Lord knows our condition and faith in Him leads us to trust the Lord and know that He is good, even when we can't see it. His plans for you, listen, are good. His Word says that, even when you can't see the final outcome. God's grace does not necessarily give us what we want. 
God's grace gives us what we need. And often we don't know what we need. We often fight the providence of God because in our eyes, His providence is not what we need, but the providence of the Lord is the very thing that we do need. Friend, let us receive the providence of the Lord with thankfulness. Whatever your life circumstance may be today, know that the Lord has appointed it. And He's done so for your good. You may look at your life and think, I would write the script of my life completely differently from the way God has written it. But you would get it wrong. And God always gets it right. Trust Him. Trust His providence. Trust His all-encompassing sovereignty. Now let's turn to the word judgment. So look at verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You know what this is? This is called wrath. This is the righteous anger of God. These people despised manna, the bread from heaven. They were followed, Paul tells us this, they were followed around by a rock that provided them with water. And Paul tells us in the New Testament that that rock was Christ. They deserved to be bitten by snakes and die. One of the biggest lies the world has believed about God is that God will not judge them. One of the worst things someone can say is, only God can judge me. That's a terrible thing to be under the judgment of God. God is love. How could He judge? God and I are good. He will forgive me at the end. Why would God judge me? I read the Bible. I go to church. I give money to the church and to the poor. Friends, God's judgment is not avoided by outweighing the bad we do with the good. That's not how we avoid His judgment. It is impossible to, to avoid the judgment of God on our own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is an all-encompassing statement. No exceptions. Sin is the problem. Sin is our greatest problem. And everyone in this room today has to deal with it. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so He does not hear. Sin creates alienation from God and alienation from God is the very definition of hell you know there's a way that we can read the Old Testament that we kind of input insert our ways ourselves in Israel's victory but then we kind of ignore their failure we think we would be great at slaying giants and parting the seas. But we don't often think being swallowed by a giant sinkhole in the ground or bitten by fiery snakes would apply to us. Friends, the sin of Israel is indicative of our sin. Apart from Christ, we would do the same. 
Apart from Christ, we would receive the righteous, eternal judgment of God. We would not do it better. We would have not reacted in faith. We would fail too. Everyone would fail. But the good news of the Gospel is there where everyone fails, Jesus succeeds. Friends, sin is our greatest problem. And this fact needs to inform how we view every area of our lives. It should affect how we live out our lives and prioritize things in our lives. Our children don't merely need a better education or more friends. They need God because their biggest problem is the sin that is native to their hearts. Our spouses don't need better influences or a mentor. They need the gospel. Our neighbors don't need improved neighborhoods. Our cities, our state, our country doesn't merely need better politics or politicians. Our churches don't simply need more people or better technology. We need God. We need redemption. We need to be united with Christ by faith so that our sins can be forgiven. So how does this happen? How does this union with Christ happen? Well, let's consider the word repentance. Repentance. If sin is the problem, repentance is the solution. Look at the first half of verse 7. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. An acknowledgement. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you, that's a specific acknowledgement. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. That's a request for redemption. This was a severe, a severe judgment from the Lord. The loss of life. The aggravation of the hardship in the desert. Sometimes life feels that way, doesn't it? God is aggravating my woes. David would rightly express this by saying countless times in the book of Psalms, How long, O Lord? But often, the severity of the Lord leads us to repentance. 1 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, right? this is the severity of God, this is when God brings hardship into our lives, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, when God brings sorrow to His people, He does so with a purpose. Suffering for the believer is never purposeless. When God brings about sorrow to His people, He does so so that He can save His people. God's severity towards Israel leads Israel to repentance. So Israel can even, can even boast about their repentance. Why? Because he was brought about by the Lord. So the only right response to sin is repentance. And repentance means acknowledging the wrong we've done 
and turning away from it. Notice that the people confess their sin in a specific way. Not just we've sinned, but we have spoken against the Lord. There's a lesson here for us, right? When we come before the Lord in repentance, we should be specific. Father, forgive me for I sinned against you in this way or in that way. If, if repentance involves the turning away from sin, acknowledging the specific sin we are repenting from is necessary. So they request that the Lord remove the judgment from them. They believe that judgment comes from the Lord. They recognize that. They don't blame Satan for their suffering. They don't blame, blame the fallenness of the world. They don't, bl they don't blame the environment. Although in that area of the desert, serpents were very common. They know that judgment comes from the Lord. God is able to judge. And that's important. Why? Because God is also able to save. They believe that judgment comes from the Lord, but they also believe that salvation comes from the Lord. From the Lord comes the good news. From the Lord comes hope. From the Lord comes restoration. True repentance comes from belief and belief in the gospel. We've heard this so many times as we've worked through the first eight chapters of Mark. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says in his first message, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance that is from God leads to faith in God. Re repentance that is from God does not lead us to think much of ourselves. Repentance that comes from God leads us to think much of God. <coughs> repentance is not a shallow statement of remorse. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to faith and faithfulness. I wonder if you take repentance serious in your life. Friends, if we don't come to repentance, we never move away from judgment. And there is an appointed time for repentance that will expire. I wonder if you take seriously the holiness of God. I wonder if you look at the sin in your life and you think God would be right to judge me. How often do you confess your sins to the Lord? You know how often we should confess our sins to the Lord? As often as we sin. Often weak faith stems from a lack of confession. When we confess our sins, we're forgiven. When we confess our sins, we are assured. When we confess our sins, our faith is strengthened. So, do you struggle with assurance of salvation? Can I ask you, do you confess your sins to the Lord? Do you trust that Jesus has paid it all, therefore we can approach God's throne of mercy 
boldly? Friends, when, when we confess our sins, we are expressing faith in God. We believe that God can redeem us. And when sinners find faith, their sins are atoned for. So let's finally consider the word atonement. Look at the last part of verse 7 through the first part of verse 9 in our text. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. The word atonement is an interesting word. It comes from the English at one moment. Word atonement is a sacrifice that covers the sin immediately, completely. Notice that Israel knew their unworthiness. They go to Moses, a priest and a prophet. God has always dealt with his people through an intermediary. Moses is not prideful, he's humble. The people sinned against him. But in his humility, he intercedes for the people. And God hears him. He gives them the antidote to physical death. Friends, this is how God still works with us today. God has given us an intermediary for us to go to. And this is an intermediary who is much greater than Moses. When we have a sin problem, we must go to this intermediary. His name is Jesus. And the Apostle John tells us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteous, unrighteousness. The people go to Moses. And God gives them the antidote. What is the antidote? God tells Moses to make a fiery serpent and lift it high. And all who are bitten will be healed if they will, if they will just lift their eyes and look at the bronze serpent. But God a serpent? That's a cursed animal. That's an unclean animal. God, these serpents are the very things that are killing us. We hate serpents. And God says, lift your eyes. Look at that accursed animal. It is because of your sin that this serpent is being lifted up. Your only hope to survive is to look to the serpent and live. Don't go looking for an antidote yourself. Don't go looking for the solution within you. 
Don't go dress your wounds with good works. Don't try to save yourself. Just lift your eyes. Look to the serpent and live. Well, if this is not puzzling enough, Jesus would pick up this story in the Gospel of John during his conversation with Nicodemus. And in John 3.14, Jesus says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus draws a comparison between him and the serpent. But is that right? How can Jesus be like the serpent? I thought the serpent symbolized, represented sin, curse, evil. The book of Revelation calls the devil that ancient serpent. How could Jesus draw comparisons between himself, God in the flesh, and the serpent? Well, friends, here is the great mystery of the gospel. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he became cursed. He became sin. The vision of the serpent was similar to the vision of Jesus on his cross. No, it was not his sin that was pinned to that cross but the sins of everyone who would confess Him as Savior. When we look at the cross of Christ, we see the very thing that is killing us spiritually. The very thing that demanded the curse of God. When we lift our eyes and see the cross of Christ, we see sin our sin, pinned to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We look to Christ on the cross because in our union with Christ He became our sin and we became His righteousness just as the cursed serpent in the wilderness saved the physical lives of the people of Israel, Jesus, cursed on the cross, saves us from sin. This is not, this is not unfathomable. By virtue of being united with Christ, He receives the punishment we deserve and we become co-heirs of His kingdom in glory. Friends, just as Israel could not save themselves from the serpent, we can't save ourselves from sin. But Jesus, Jesus is able to save. Is this not the best news one could ever receive? Is this not good news beyond belief for sinners like you and me? This, my friends, is the message of the gospel and this message is available for you today if you will turn away from your sins 
and behold Christ in his cross. Notice how the text ends. And it came about that if a serpent bit a man, any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. It worked. The venom that filled the veins of the people of Israel dissipated. The antidote ran in its place. Their blood was clean. Their lives were saved. Whenever God sets out to save men, His provision is always perfect. So friend, have you received the provision of God for your life today? Have you been bitten, you have been bitten by the poison of this world, which is called sin? Without repentance, you are under the judgment of God You may not realize this, but you are dying spiritually apart from Christ. Your only hope in this life is to see Jesus hanging on the cross in your place. Do not try to save yourself. Do not make your, try to make yourself right before God. Do not come to God in your own terms. Abandon every confidence you have in yourself. Look to Christ and live. Would you pray with me? Father, how desperately we need the atonement that Christ provides. Father, break the pride and unbelief that often persists in our hearts. Do not let us grumble against You, Lord. Lord, if it is hardship that we must go through in order to you, we'll receive it gladly. Father, help us. Help us lift our eyes and see our sins pinned to the cross of Christ and see in Him our only hope for righteousness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.